Welcome to Harnessing Your Wealth with Billy Peterson. As the founder and CEO of Peterson Wealth Services and a former number one ranked jockey, Billy knows what it takes to succeed. In this podcast, Billy and his team will help equine enthusiasts, business owners, and retirees understand the keys to financial freedom. Saddle up and get ready for a ride you won't soon forget on how you can harness your wealth. Hey, sports fans. It's Billy Peterson again with Harnessing Your Wealth. I just wanted to welcome you all to the show and also welcome our special guest, Kip Diedrichsen, to the show. He is a very well-renowned jockey, ex-jockey, I should say. Now he's a businessman, moved on into different walks of life. But Kip brings a very reputable background and resume in the world of quarter horse racing. He, like a five-time AQHA champion jockey, he led the country many times, won pretty much every race there was to win. And I looked up to him my entire career. And as I was getting started in the business, he was already one of the most accomplished riders in the country. And I'm excited to have him today. So we're going to enter the starting gates with Kip. We're going to take a rear view look at his career. And he's going to tell us some very fun and interesting stories and kind of trip down memory lane, if you will, Kip. I think you're going to enjoy this as much as I, as I'm going to enjoy it. So, and also Cade is on the call with us. He's going to join in the conversation. He's also been told many stories that I've shared over my life uh, while he's been around my background and the things that I've told him many times, sharing stories about other people that I knew. And you're of course, one of them, your dad has been a great friend of ours as well, Dwayne. So we see him all the time at the AQHA shows and, and conferences. So again, welcome Kip. Thanks for being here today. It's good to be here. I'm going to kick things off. Just ask you, take us all the way back to your time as a kid in Idaho and how you really got started in this becoming a jockey. Just how did you get going? Well, I was raised in a racehorse family. My dad trained racehorses when I was little and um, uh, Steve Treasure lived with us for, uh, I was probably four or five years old when Steve was living with us. And so I wouldn't say Steve was my idol, but I definitely wanted to be like, um, uh, like, like a jockey and wanted to be a jockey. And my dad rode very good riders. Johnny Ward was one of the other riders that my dad rode all the time. And um, there, there was this, he, he just always was, um, around, I was around really good riders and wanted to be like them. And there's always quarter horse riders. It was never, so even as a little kid, I wanted to be a quarter horse rider. And so that's, that was the path I was, uh, it was really hard for me to go to school because I didn't understand why I needed to go to school. <laughs> there you go. You're probably still wondering that today. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I, well, now, now when you get into real life, you all, all of a sudden you understand why school's needed. Yeah. Yeah. I think we, we all kind of uh, look for the time when we're going to get out. I remember when I was in high school and it was the only thing I was looking forward to is getting back to, you know, getting on the horses in that afternoon, going to exercise horses or whatever. I was going to do that later that day. So fun times. Yeah, there. when I when I was fifteen, obviously you can't have a license till you're sixteen, and I, I would I, I was loping everybody's horses around town before and after school, and and seventh hour I'd after roll call it was athletics, so if they weren't paying attention, I could sneak out and get out early, and I, I was loping horses for Lynn Milton down in Smithfield, 
And I, I, I was charging everybody a dollar twenty-five to gallop their horse, and if they'd let me breeze them, I wouldn't charge them. So, uh, <laughs> so I, I had a heck of a business going on. That's funny. That is great. So yeah, breeze them, and you pay. We we owe you nothing. Go ahead and breeze that one again, Kip. We we breezed it yesterday. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, Doc House. I don't know if you know who Doc House was, but he's a very wealthy man there and had a lot of horses. And when his trainer would leave town and he was in charge, we did. We breezed every horse in the barn because he was tight. He didn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got a lot of good experience out of that. I I'm did. Su- I I'm did. sure you got on some reckless and brown, kind of bronc horses, didn't you? I did. Um, uh, Lynn Milton, uh, I don't know how much you've been around him, but his horses were never broke real well. And um, there was one horse that, I, you know, when I, that winter, I was, it was real cold, you know, 10 degrees. And he'd have him in stock saddles one day, and then the next day he'd have him in flat saddles. And there was one horse he had that, that would buck. And he wasn't a very good – he had that good rocking horse buck. And so I'd let him keep his head down, and I'd pretend I was a, a saddle bronc rider and really spur him and just have all kinds of fun. And I didn't think I didn't. I thought it was too cold for Lynn to be out there watching. But the next day, it, that horse showed up with a, um, a flat saddle on it instead of a stock because I'd keep his head up with the flat saddle. And <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, that's that's going back in time. I remember I got on some crazy horses. A lot of the guys were too smart to get on them. I was too stupid. I just get on anything they lead up there. Yeah. So, kind of like you. How did you get started and going from that level and? And then transitioning all the way to Los Alamitos when you kind of became, let's say, famous, if you will. Well, you know, I um, uh, I had troubles getting started when I was 16 at Lebois Park here in Boise because my dad was in the politics and I worked my tail off and couldn't hardly get on a horse. And uh, Jimmy Lewis broke his leg in uh, Helena, Montana, and uh, Al Carruthers had a string of horses there, all derby and fraternity horses. And so um, uh, I, I ended up, that's where I rode when I was 16 was Montana. And that was, uh, you know, really good for me because I got to ride some good horses. I, we, we didn't win any fraternities or derbies, but we qualified horses for all of them. And I got to ride good horses and had some fun and, and got some experience. But that led me into Billingsley Creek Ranch that next year. I got a um, job with Billingsley Creek Ranch, which Donnie McFadden, he had the best of the best. I got a, I, we win all kinds of big races um, when I was 17 the next year. And uh, I, and I, I'm not, I hope that Donnie listens to this because me and Donnie have talked and what really helped me in my success was that experience with him because it, it wasn't really much my ride and it was how I run my business. And I was the, the I worked for the ranch. I, I galloped all the horses. I bathed all the horses. I cleaned their stalls. I, I, I was almost running the barn. Um, the trainer was hardly around. And I was doing everything but entering the horses. And I'd qualified a really nice derby horse for a, a derby in Yakima, Washington, the pot of gold, the pot of gold derby. And um, when I went and picked up the overnight, John Crager was on my horses. Oh, and um, it, it was like a knife. Yeah. And he, at that time, John Crager was the leading rider in the nation. And I packed my stuff within 15, 20 minutes of picking up the overnight. And I don't know where it come from um, because I, I, I told Donnie and the trainer, um, Kevin Loveland, I says, you know, I, I'm a better rider than him and, and left. 
and um, the next year I rode for anybody and everybody. Uh, I qualified three three horses for the fraternity a year later for three different trainers, and two horses for the derby. And you know, I, it, it really all of a sudden I was not looking for a barn to ride for. Matter of fact, I, I even later on when I had chances to ride for really good barns and they wanted me solely, I, I wouldn't do it. I, yeah. I wanted to, and in my opinion, that's what catapulted me into the success I had because I wasn't tied to one barn. I, do, I wasn't hoping they'd get a good horse. I, now I, I was chasing the good horses. I see. Yeah. So that kind of was holding you back. And then when they, when they axed you and went behind your back and put somebody else on that hadn't done any of the work that just opened your mind to, Hey, yeah, um, well, it, it made me change my business. It, it was a it was all about business then. And, and yeah. they, they were wonderful. You know, the, I, I, Donnie just gave me a, a chance, you know, what 17 year old kid gets to ride the best horses in the, in the country. You know what right. I mean? It was really, it, it was, it was perfect for me. I got to ride some really good horses and, got to um, uh, improve what I was doing, but I wasn't riding that many horses. You know, you, you, you as, all, as a young kid, you want to get on a bunch of horses. So I was only riding for one barn and, you know, just riding a horse here and there whenever they entered a horse. So that next I year I rode every race and had multiple horses and every, you know, then I went to um, riding for anybody and everybody. And um, uh, when I first went to La Salle, I kept track of the backside trainers and after the first year, I rode for every trainer on the backside. It was a goal of mine to make sure that um, all my milk wasn't in the same jug. Mm. That's pretty impressive, Kip, just to think about how you handled your business and just just going about it a different way than a lot of riders. They just show up and you know try to talk their way into a certain barn, whereas you had a goal and you paid attention and you followed the horses and you kind of got to know who had what. I'm sure that was a big part of your success. And going back to Donnie McFadden, I remember every year they'd have that fall this fall sale, that yearling sale. One of the one of the most exciting times of my childhood was going to that sale every year with my dad and my uncles and 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 the BC, the Billingsley Creek Ranch sale. It was um some something to see. It was so much fun. And we'd buy horses there every the year. Face of the racing. Yeah, he, yeah. Without Donnie McFadden, the racing wouldn't be what it is in Idaho. Or, yeah. or was I, I, it's pretty much collapsed in Idaho now, but but it was pretty big at that time, and I, I credit Donnie with that. Um, yeah. That I lived in that barn um, uh, there, the the training barn there. I had a little apartment there, and that's where I lived. And they, there was a creek that ran down below the uh, barn there, um, and I'd go down and fish until I heard a fish. And when I heard a fish, I'd go up, and, and that, that was my dinner. It was <laughs> you know, I was 16, 17, 17 years old. It was the the life that you dream of. Oh yeah. Some great stories. Well, I love uh, going back to Los Alamitos. Those are the those are the heydays back then. Uh, so many good riders, so many great horsemen and great horses, and just things were were hopping. I mean, when I showed up at Los Alamitos, it was it was the end of 1995, and I was in awe at the the talent level of people out there and just trying to get established and get into that jocks room was something to behold. I I tell people now. You know, I, I'm not sure if there's ever been a maybe. I mean, we could keep going back. Probably everybody has the same opinion, but you know, you can rattle off Hall of Famer after Hall of Famer, and just the, the riders in that colony were pretty damn impressive. I thought the it ones was, that didn't make the Hall of Fame, you know, the Donnie DeLumbas, the Kenny Crulises, the um, you know, the George Fridays, 
just writer after writer that were amazing writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it was a solid. Uh, there was 20 writers that uh, could have rode that horse that won the race. You know, the, the, yeah. It was a matter of getting on that horse. Yeah. Such good talent. And I think that it showed that you have to be above and beyond. You had to kind of be a little different. And so, you, you know, a lot of people had the very similar physical attributes, but they, they had to do something different to get noticed. And I'm sure you learned that and just kind of being smart, being, um, being able to it, communicate. In my opinion, it wasn't talent. It was, um, I, 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 I could talk to the people and I, I could work. I, I was the first one on the racetrack in the morning and I was the last one on the racetrack. And this is a really good, I, I hope Paul Jones listens to this because um, uh, Paul, when he first started training, he had some rats. I mean, some bad horses and um, he, no one would ever get on his horses and he would stand the gap all day. And, and as long as good horses were coming that I was wanting to ride. I just keep galloping them. But if there was anybody at the gap, I, I would not leave. I, I galloped everybody's horse. And I remember one day I, I Paul Jones threw me on a horse and I, I told him, I says, I'll lope him for you if you promise not to ride me on him. And, um, and, and he says, someday I'm going to have a horse that you'll want to ride. <laughs> That's and, funny. <laughs> he, he believed in himself because he, <laughs> he turned into one of the best. Um, you know, back when I started, he was just, he was just getting things going, you know, getting a few more horses, be more owners. And, and so it wasn't such a struggle, but I remember those days too. I mean, Blaine Schwanabel was the king back in those days. And so everybody, and he'd have five or six jocks standing at his shed row all day, waiting, just begging to get on a horse to lope one. And, um, guys like Paul and others were, were hoping that they could get their horses galloped. They, you know, have to lead them up there. And I remember that happened to me one day. Uh, Chuck Treese had a horse. He he needed he needed gated, and he's had it at, standing at the gap. And clat track was about ready to close, and no one getting on this horse. And I just got off one. It was close by, and I walked up. Will you work this horse for me? I said okay. You know, I, I'd ridden a couple of thoroughbreds for Chuck, and you know, this was a little quarter horse filly by Barrymore. I didn't. I never been on her before in my life, and I got on warmed her up took her behind the gate the the gate handler he he got a hold of her just put that lead rope through her bit and started trying to lead her up and she she started soaking back and and instead of just giving her a little bit of slack he just kept pulling on her kept pulling harder harder and pretty quick she goes up in the air and over backwards and flat on her back smashing me to the ground before i could even think about getting away from her it happened so quick. It was a, you know, one or two second, bam. And I thought it'd kill me. I mean, it, it smashed me pretty good. And I learned my lesson there. I, I did, I didn't do that anymore, but they thought I was paralyzed. I mean, I was, it scared me, really scared me. It was the worst injury I ever had, you know, huh. going into a gate, not even in a race. You know, I've always said, once you start getting scared, you, you might as well hang it up because if you're thinking about a horse breaking down or, or not riding hard to win, you're not going to be able to succeed. And, you know, you know, how quickly they turn on rider who loses that ability and they start calling you chilly, you know, you're chilly and you know, your career is pretty much over at that point. Yeah. I, um, uh, I, I never, it never crossed my mind you know, the whole time. I just, um, uh, I, I loved every minute of it and um, it didn't, I, I guess I just never got hurt bad enough. You know what I mean? You got in with Baffert. And then he he actually started putting in some good ones. And then I remember seeing you at Sunland Park riding for him in the 
you know, like the West Texas trials and things like that. And then I know Blaine put you on a lot of good ones. So who do you think were your standout? I know you rode for everybody, but. Yeah, I, I rode for successful? everybody, but with, without Frank Montleone, I don't, I, I think I still would have succeeded, but he sped the process up. Frank was, um, he, he's not a horseman. He, he was a gambler and he, he had assistant trainers that were horsemen and then he had really good vets. So, and he knew how to enter because he was a gambler. So I, he, matter of fact, when I was still galloping horses before I started riding, he put me on I, two different horses on the same night when I was still a gallop boy and when I win both races. So, and then when we went to Bay Meadows, that's when I quit being a gallop boy and went to riding and he, he rode me first call on his whole barn. And, you know, just having every time he, yeah, he, he was well above a 20% win clip. Uh, he, him and Baffert were wonderful to have on in my corner because I, I was set to win races just having those two trainers riding me. And, and, and I did get them fighting against for me. You know, be, and that's that's really nice. You just got to make the right decision. Then you just got because that you got to ride the horse to win, so they you have you're justified for taking off the other guy's horse. Sure, <laughs> sure. Excuse me, we're almost in the home stretch for the episode, but before we cross the finish line, I just want you to know that you can contact Billy and his team at www.petersonws.com or by visiting the show notes. Now back to harnessing your wealth. I mean, the most famous horse Montley owned train, right? Was Corona Chick. Yeah, she was and, amazing. And, amazing, and, amazing. And you rode her in every race, didn't you? No, I had in 1991, that Bay Meadows meet, I was on fire. I, I just had set the record for the most win or the, the, uh, the most money ever won in a single season and won the All American and the Champion of Champions in 1990. So then Bay Meadows in the early spring of 1991. Everybody was riding me. Um, Cesar Dominguez was um, uh, riding me first call. Baffert was riding me first call. Um, uh, uh, Montleone. And just those three. And Blaine, he never really rode me heavy. You know, I, he had a horse here and there that I would ride for him. But he, he, he was never my main go-to um, uh, uh, trainer. But um, uh, I, I rode a horse for Danny Eakins in um, Waverino was that horse's name, and I'd win a fraternity, uh, early, early fraternity there in Utah, um, uh, and, and I thought he was fast. I really liked him, and he broke the track record, and all those good horses that had run at that track, he just, I, I really believed in my heart. I'd found my, my horse, and Waverino and Corona Chick got in the same trial, and I took off of Corona Chick, and just luckily, Eddie Garcia got the mount. And, you know, Eddie, he just could not help himself. He had to beat him up from the time he got on him till he got off him. And she was the wrong horse to do that with. And mm -hmm. um, I still won the fraternity. I, I won the fraternity on Ed Grimley. But, um, uh, uh, yeah, she was the better. She should have outrun Ed Grimley. But Eddie, he had her so turned upside down. And then um, uh, Ed went to Riadoso and, and Corona Chick went to Los Alamitos. So they separated them, and Frank Frank was always my. He, I got right back on a Corona Chick, and then I never took off, and she never got beat again. Mm. Yeah, she, uh, she, she, and and I did lose Baffert when they come back together. Was the Breeders Classic, 
And Ed Grimley had got beaten in the All-American fraternity and he should never have got beat. He was the best horse and he got, a, he, he didn't finish that day. And there, it, it's funny how I still can't tell the whole story because I don't want to put anybody down, but the horse didn't finish like he should have. Okay. And, um, uh, and um, so that's the only time he'd ever been beat. And I qualified Hollandese. Ed Grimley and Colonel Chick all to um, a fraternity there after the All-American was over. And I took off of Baffert's horses to ride Corona Chick. And then, you know, she demolishes them and beats them by daylight. And, and then the next race was the Breeders' Classic. Um, uh, and Baffert enters both uh, uh, Hollandese and uh, Ed Grimley back and doesn't give me, and I've never been beat on Hollandese. I'd always qualified him for all the fraternities in the trials and then took off him in the finals. And they rode Nicodemus on, um, on him and gave Henry Garcia Ed Grimley. Mm. And I picked up a horse um, called Bills Ryan from Blaine and he didn't have a good form at all. He was a long shot and a stud horse. And I, I, I was out for fire and he was the 10 horse. And I, I got one of those good headers that no knew what they was doing. And we walked him forward at the right moment and we daylighted him and beat him bad. <laughs> and, um, uh, oh, that's a, that's a highlight of my career of, um, out, you know, cause the, there was just no reason for me not to be on, uh, on Ed Grimley mm. and Ed Grimley even ran third. He didn't even run second. And Holland, Hollandese was an amazing horse. Um, uh, people don't know him because he was the same age as uh, Corona Chick. Uh, he, he ran second to Corona Chick many, many times. That, and that's that one was, of the reasons why they chose to breed those two together. And that created one of the most prolific stallions of all time. You think yeah. about Corona Cartel. I mean, you, you breed Corona Chick to Hollandese and there's what you get. Yeah, she, yeah they, they were both very, very nice horses, um, uh, fast horses. Um, very little separated them. Um, uh, Corona Chick, though, there was nothing that could beat her when she was right. Uh, it wasn't in, when she finally got beat in the race, she's dragging a leg. You know what I mean? And they catch her right at the fire. I wasn't even sure we got beat that day. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's the you other know, Then they finally retired her. Um, she, yeah. she was amazing. What a Philly. I remember sitting at home back. That's when they had the night racing. Um, it wasn't TVG, but I can't remember what it was broadcast on, but thinking of the the announcer who was always out there oh, the mar yeah marketing. um yes i yeah uh, petty john petty that was his name and he would always be up there talking and i was watching and i'd watch you every time corona chick was running out i would watch you and i just i tried to study how you got those horses out of the gate because you always seem to get them out so well um i watched all those little things like that and trying to learn for myself but she had to be one of your top three all-time favorites, didn't she? Or I, I just oh, want, I'm interested right. to hear your top three favorite yeah, horses all time. Keep her really quiet. She had a she had a motor that never quit, and you ha you just pretty much needed to jog her to the gate and walk her to the gate if possible, because um, yeah, you needed to keep her motor running really slow because she didn't need no warming up. She she was warm already. Hmm. <laughs> she was ready. Yeah. Hmm. Who else? What are your other top? Well, the, the, the fastest horse I ever rode, um, uh, no one even knows of him, and he only ran two or three races before he broke down, but um, or, or maybe got his heart broke by first down dash. But um, Baffert um, at Bay Meadows had a horse called Slick Talker show up, and he he ran him in like a eight, he was either eight thousand or ten thousand dollar claiming race, and. Um, uh, he, 
I, I don't, he wasn't even a favorite, I don't think, but he just demolished him and broke the track record. And all I was doing was trying to keep him on the racetrack. He was wanting to run all over the racetrack and I, all I was doing was guiding him. And so then they ran him back allowance and we improved a ton. You know, I, I could ride him a little bit and he broke, he broke the he broke his own track record again and ran even faster. And so then we took him back to Los Alamitos and he um, got in a trial with first down dash. And I was in the eight hole and first down dash. You know how years pass. It was either me and the eight and him and the 10. There was one horse in between us. And um, uh, he left there and, and had him headed and uh, maybe a couple hundred yards before the wire, first down dash put me away and he never ran again. Really? That was it? Yeah. I, I don't know if he, you know how secretive it is about the soundness of horses, whether he hurt himself or whether he found out he wasn't the fastest horse around. Hmm. <laughs> Sometimes it changes yeah, their attitude. Carter, he was an amazing fast horse, but obviously hmm. refrigerator has to come into that conversation too. Yeah. Um, uh, refrigerator, once he didn't have to run in trials, he was about unbeatable. You know, hmm. uh, but, but the trials hurt him so bad because you couldn't turn him off. Yeah, he, he was a freight train and you couldn't slow him down. No matter how hard I tried not to let him run, he, I couldn't stop him from running. And so he, it was really hard for him to come back after a race. And um, I should have won the champion of champions in 1991 also. With, uh, he was a three-year-old, but he had to run in trials for the, for, for, to run in the champion of champions. And uh, I, I didn't even let him run. I, I, I'm standing up trying to stop him the whole way in the race. And he outruns special leader by three quarters of a length with me not even letting him run or trying to keep him from running. And he, he was all right. But special leader ended up winning the champion of champions. And he just never untracked that night. And, and, and I think he still finished third or fourth. You know, I mean, and just – I, I think he got cross leaded right out of the gate. I think is what happened besides having that hard race, you know, a couple of weeks earlier Yeah. between, between those two things, re refrigerator, once he didn't have to run in trials, he was amazing. Hmm. Something else. Yeah. Yeah. All, all those old horse races, they, they, they couldn't, they couldn't run. Mm -hmm. The competitiveness. I, I, I was, it, we, here we are talking about all these fast horses, but um, I just love to win that 90, 1991 um, season and mostly that Bay Meadows meet. Uh, I was the leading rider with 66 wins. The next rider to me only had 22 and I win every stake race in, in the, on the, uh, that, that whole meet. And that, that was my, if we have a highlight, uh, it was, it's just so much fun to win. <laughs> I love winning. It doesn't matter. Like um, uh, there was a couple really good claiming horses that I just loved. Um, hey, honey, miss. And she got claimed through a bunch of different trainers and she just was a hard running, just an amazing horse. Um, uh, just uh, and her knees were big and, you know, everybody was scared of her and she, she had just run through her bridle. I, I remember one night uh, Rodney Hart had her, and I'd had a really bad couple nights. I couldn't hardly get a horse to the winner's circle. And I had her, I had the pony girl cut me loose and I jogged her down the backside. And nice, how nice it is at Los Alamitos, you know, how quiet and beautiful it is. And I pulled her over and let her look at the grandstands and I patted her and I told her, I says, if you run off with me tonight, I'll, I'll never take off you and um, I'll always take care of you. 
And she, she killed me. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's some great stories. Yeah, we have so many questions. I wrote down a ton of stuff I wanted to ask and get to. Um, just the interesting stories, and I know you can share them. I'm in a interest of time. I'm going to have to kind of move through a couple of these and and just ask you, in your opinion, what were your what were your top accomplishments as a jockey? I know you told me that 91 season. What else stands out for you? Like, what do you look at and what do you have enshrined in well, your what house? What I get all the accolades for is that 1990 year because of winning the champion of champions in the All-American. At, at that time, I was the only rider to have done that, to win the All-American and the, uh, and the champion of champions in the same year. And then I broke the records for um, uh, money won that year also. But ni- the 1991 year, I was just right underneath that number and didn't win the All-American or the Champion of Champions. And I was knocking on the door on both of those, right? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I, if, I, if I wouldn't have ran second in the All-American, I, I ran second in the All-American Derby, all, second in the All-American Fraternity and second in the All-American Constellation, and then should have won the Champion of Champions. And I still was far and away 1991's money earner. And you put all that together, um, it, it, it's fun to win a race when you're not on the best horse. It really hurts to get beat when you're on the best horse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Been there, done that. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. So all you learned and all that, all that work ethic that you learned back then, has that been the secret and how you've transitioned? Now oh, you're retired now. Heck, you're a grandpa. You know, you love to go hunting and everything like that. That's kind of one of your passions. But in your career and what you do for a living, how, how have you been able to excel and transition from being, you know, number one ranked jockey, knowing everywhere to do what you do today? Yeah, you know, I, I when I was riding, I never looked at myself that way. It, it was always about showing up, being the first one there and loping the horses and looking for a faster horse. All those accolades came because of my hard work. And I feel that way. And I've owned a couple different businesses and my real estate business, I would be the third. And every one of them, it's how hard you work and, and, and learning from your mistakes. And know, you know, we both rode with riders that um, I always wished I could walk away from a bad ride and say it was the horse's fault. And there was all kinds of riders that would walk away from a bad ride and blame the horse. And it's like, you know, and I was the opposite. Uh, when I, you know, I, I, sometimes I'd win a race and watch what I did and think, wow, good thing that horse to overcome me. And I think that in business too, you, you, you need to be honest and um, with yourself and what, what do I need to do different? And um, in business, I have sold a business, one business that I'd improved dramatically from the time I bought it till I sold it. And I'd owned it for about five years before I sold it. <clears throat> and it was a really good experience for me to sell it because the guy that bought it from me, he made some adjustments. And it's like, oh, I fell asleep at the wheel. Hmm. I, I think you can get comfortable and say, oh, what I have is fine. You know what I mean? And, and you lose that drive. And, and I think that happens with riders too. You know, you, after that's what's nice about the young rider having the eye of the tiger and he's never done it and want to do it. And I think that happens in business too. Mm-hmm. Um, um, driving to do better. You, you get complacent. Wake up every day and try to be better, find right? A, find a new angle. Mm-hmm. And that, that's that one business. That's really what I, I hadn't thought about the, a couple different angles that this new guy bought, you know, that when, you know, it, right. it, it really was a good wake up call for me. You know, you ever think about getting out 
back into the business as an owner? No, I, there, at one time I thought I would, I thought that I, it'd be fun to um, just have a couple of horses and um, uh, do it more as a hobby for me to take a horse down to live well park and run it. And then if I got a good one, then send it, you send it on to big time. But I, um, I don't know. I, um, I, I don't have that desire to, to become an owner. Mm. Just comfortable with what you're doing right now. You're just yeah, looking, I, looking for big deer. Yeah, my um, uh, hunting might get in the way of everything because I, I do like hunting. I, <laughs> I, I, I I got a closing on the real estate project on August 30th first. This and and I I'm going to be stuck helping that transition. And September 1st is opening day of elk season. And it's bothering me. <laughs> it's bothering me that how did I get that timing down to where I'm not going to be there on opening day? Yeah. Well, you had to find something to put your passions in. So I'm glad that you found the hunting deal. You know, you and my brother need to get together because he lives that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Don't pick up a bow. We, we don't need another bad habit. Yeah. That's, that was- <laughs> yeah. Well, Kip, we're sure appreciative of your time today. I mean, I could go on and on for hours, but um, I'm going to talk to you again and get some more of this stuff because hopefully we'll be able to bump into you at one of these conferences. I know you don't, you don't attend a lot of that stuff, but I know people in the industry would love to see you out and about. So think about coming out to some of these conferences and and uh, big race nights. Um, we'll bump into you and catch up to, on some more stories. It was fun. Like I said, it, it's fun to go over the, you forget about these if you don't talk about them. Uh, when they were running the Los Alamitos, the, the Kip Didrickson handicap, it was a good excuse to show up and see everybody. And um, you know, that, 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 that was just enough to get me there to um, uh, rub shoulders with everybody and see how everybody was doing. So I, I do feel bad that um, I don't have that excuse anymore. Well, heck, we can find one for you. I'm sure another track will name a race after you. That's what it's going to take. You know, the the first time I met you was at Lebois, or not Lebois, but um, Laurel Brown Racetrack there in South Jordan. And I was there riding, trying to get established, just a really young kid. And you were there and you had pretty much a full cart of, of mounts to ride and pretty well, everyone knew you at that point. And, you know, just, I still remember to this day, you walked into the jocks room with your your gear. I was in there getting ready and you walked right over and looked me in the eye and said, Hey, I'm Kip Dedrickson. Nice to meet you. And you didn't know me and didn't even need to acknowledge me, you know, kid like I was. So I surely appreciated that. And I try to pass that on to, to the youth today is they take time. And if, even if you're accomplished and you're um, amazing, people look, look up to you and they will remember those things. So I wanted yeah, to tell I, you I that. I had the opposite experience. When I first went to La Salle, one of the big riders that I won't name, there was a, a, a struggling rider in the jocks room and this rider put him down and made him feel like an ant. Mm-hmm. And I, I, that was before I had done what I'd done. And I told myself, if I ever am in that shoes, I, I'm going to help somebody. And um, so thanks for that. That is good to hear that, um, that, that what I tried to do happened. You did it. You did the right thing. So I really appreciate it. Value that. Well, fans, thanks for joining us today. We're glad that we got a chance to interview Kip and have him on the show. I've always wanted to talk to him about his career. He was always an inspiration to me. He did it all. And I want you to remember, um, you know, what it takes to be successful in life is just putting in that hard work, pay attention to detail 
go above and beyond and and set those goals because you know a story like his can have ramifications and on all of our lives no matter what kind of career you're in you don't have to be a jockey you know whatever you're going to do just work hard at it and set those goals high kip once again thanks for joining us fans out there we'll talk to you again next time thank you for listening to harnessing your wealth with billy peterson before we declare the race official please click the follow button so you can be notified when new episodes become available for more information about today's show please check out the show notes Visit our website at www.petersonws.com or give us a call at 801-475-4002. Once again, thank you for listening. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Peterson Wealth Services. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.